Hello and welcome to Guru Please, the show about pushing the limits of life and stepping up to live with more meaning, more purpose, and more passion. I'm your host, Jessica Sun. I'd like to introduce Andrew Mann. Andrew is an author and recovering addict who also suffered from anxiety attacks since age 12 and depression his whole life. After years and multiple failed attempts, he was finally able to beat his addiction and has now devoted his life to helping people who suffer from addictions and issues related to childhood abuse. His book, Such Unfortunates, is his true story of overcoming addiction. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you for having me on, Jessica. I really appreciate it. Let's get started by talking about your incredible journey to overcoming addiction, because it, it's not as simple as, okay, I quit and you know, I went no. to rehab and it, you know, I'm good now. So let's, let's no, talk about that. <laughs> sure, sure. I, um, I, I grew up in what could be considered um, a, a very uh, abusive household. I, I, my childhood was filled with um, really, uh, really awful, unspeakable abuse. And uh, it led me to the first thing, I, you know, being uh, suffering from depression and anxiety as a child, which I didn't really understand at that age. Um, and I, I also dealt with, I wasn't able to develop healthy boundaries with people because of the abuse I had suffered. So I dealt with a pretty horrible bullying and, and really the whole gamut. So my childhood was really a, a, a horrific experience. And that led me into the first person that ever gave me an addictive drug was a doctor, believe it or not. Out of it, He was doing it out of sort of, I was having these horrible panic attacks that were so bad, I really believed I was dying. So at age 12, I was put on an adult dose of Xanax. And no one ever really looked wanted to look at the root of what was causing the anxiety attacks. It was just, you take this drug and it'll make it go away. Mm. And at first, you know, for me, that was like, all right, great, this works. I take the drug, it goes away, but the drug wore off. And what I didn't realize is that I'd have to take more and then keep taking it. And then my body would become addicted physically and mentally to this drug. So by the time I was 12, I was a drug addict, whether I meant to or uh, you know, or not, I still was a drug addict by then. Um, and the, the Xanax never really, it didn't, it didn't deal with the depression. It just sort of took, uh, the anxiety away at bits and pieces. So I, I found alcohol and marijuana and all through high school, I sort of, by the time I graduated high school, I had taken myself to the emergency room and this is with the Xanax, which is supposedly the cure for my anxiety about 33 times believing I was dying of a heart attack. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, a. Yeah, my insurance company actually dropped me because of the cost of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were paying them. So it's, it was a, it was a tough situation, but after I, I had gone to college and I ended up failing out because of everything. And I had, I had experimented with all types of drugs and it wasn't until I found opiates I really felt that it saw at, at first it was really the magic key. It took away the depression. It took away the anxiety. It took away all the years of the horrific abuse I had felt when I was under the influence of that opiate. I felt like other people I believed felt, you know, I was mm -hmm. actually motivated to wake up during the day. Whereas before it was just 
how can I make it through this day with the least amount of pain as possible? Yeah. I, I, I strongly believe children that are abused don't develop brain chemicals like other people do, you know, like serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, they don't have the levels that other people do because mm -hmm. I think there's something in their brains when someone's raised in a loving, happy environment when they're a child, they, they have normal levels of these chemicals and they're excited about life and they're happy. For me, it was not like that. I never woke up like, wow, this is what I want to do in my future. It was just, you know, how can I get through this day without the least amount of pain? So mm -hmm. when I took that opiate, it was like, wow, this is actually working for me. This is the way I want to feel. And um, I felt great. I really did. And I once I felt that way, I didn't want to not feel that way. And so that led me on a really destructive path where I started doing whatever I had to, which basically meant I, I, I spent all my money on it. And then I started stealing uh, when I ran out of money. And uh, when the Oxycontin got too expensive, I ended up going to heroin. And that led me basically from, you know, to going as low as you can get. I ended up homeless on the streets of Camden, New Jersey, which Camden was rated the worst place to live in the country. Uh, the most murders, the most drugs. And it was like that for five years in a row. So it was, it was about as low as you could get. Um, I almost died from pneumonia freezing because I, I was sleeping out in the snow. You know, I got to experience another side of life um, where you're kind of the forgotten ones. I, I wouldn't even be allowed into a hospital emergency room when I was freezing because I was a homeless person. And, um, you know, so I got to see that side of life and uh, it got to the point where I really had given up on, uh, I was just destined to die. And I was kind of hoping I did die. I just didn't, I was too scared to commit suicide. And eventually some people that I consider angels um, came along in my life. One woman in particular, you know, she had worked at a hospital down in Camden and she, for some reason, just kept coming to see me. And uh, one day she stopped and she said, I know you've been what you've been through. I want to tell you a little bit about me. I was uh, abused by my father as a child and and I became an alcoholic and you you have to forgive whoever hurt you or you won't be able to move on with your life. And this woman knew nothing about my life. Mm. And it was just like, it was like one of those amazing things. I don't know how she, and that she wasn't afraid of some homeless guy in Camden was still a, beyond to me, but she was a great woman and she used to come bring me money and food and clothes. And uh, a couple other men sort of, that I met that I also consider angels and I write about in the book helped me to get off the street. I had been to a bunch of treatment centers. I'm leaving that out in the middle that didn't work. And mm -hmm. finally through one other person that sort of refused to give up on me and loved me when I couldn't love myself, she loved me until I could start loving myself. I was able to beat my addiction. After mm -hmm. doing that, I knew I had to give back because I really believe if someone was as bad as me can beat this, anyone out there can beat their addiction because I was as low as it could get. I overdosed and died twice. I've been to jail. I've been to rehabs. I've been to the three ends of addiction. And if I was able to beat this, I don't think anyone out there can. So yeah, that's wow. 
my story in a nutshell. Right. So now I've I've just kind of wanted to try to help as many people as I could. And that's where the book came into play. That's why I decided to write the book. Wow. I mean, it's just such a stark contrast between what you're saying and and kind of like where you're at right now. And I'm really curious, like, what did those people you're referring to as angels really do to help you? Well, um, the the last woman in particular, and I still am very close with two of them, especially. One is uh, is an older man that he got me into a, a local methadone clinic because one of the main things that I had there is I would get so violently ill when I didn't have the heroin that that was all I was consumed with. And I didn't care about going to treatment centers. I'd wake up and I needed to find heroin and then I needed to find more so I wouldn't get sick again. And it was this obvious cycle. And he paid for me to go to this methadone clinic. So it gave me kind of the time to get my head together. It gave me enough where I wasn't searching for drugs all day. And then I kind of said to myself, okay, I'll go into a treatment center and get help for these drugs. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't that, if it wasn't for him doing that, I, I don't think I would have left the streets because it just, it, it, it gave me enough time because I had to go down and sort of fill out all this paperwork. And then I had to get on a waiting list and all that stuff that when I was in my heroin addiction, if I had not gotten the break through the clinic, I wouldn't have done all that stuff. I know I wouldn't. Have. So he was able to do that. And then he found a treatment center for me to go to, um, which was great. And then the last angel in my life was a woman that refused to give up on me. And she did what she did when I was in the treatment. I went to a long-term treatment center and she wrote me a letter every day I was in there telling me that how much I was loved and that I could beat this. She also, she got me um, a little like calendar thing where every day I opened it up and she wrote something special about me. And for someone like me, I was never as a child told I love you. Not one time did I ever hear that from parents. Mm -hmm. So when a person would say that to me, I never believed them. And I had never known what it was like to feel love from somebody. So this was the first person that I ever believed really loved me. Um, And once I felt that, she encouraged me to start talking about what was the trauma inside of me, which I swore I would never tell anyone, especially as a male. I was like, I'm not talking about abuse in childhood. I just, I swore I would take it to my grave. But she talked me into sharing what was inside of me. And that was so huge for me because it was like this huge weight lifted off of me. And it wasn't until I shared that, that I was able to really start healing so before, when I had gone to these treatment centers, I would, they would remove the drugs, but I was still sick. The drugs were more of a symptom of something going wrong with me. So I would go into them for 30 days. They would remove the drugs, and then they would say, I'd leave the treatment center, and people would say, great, you're clean, everything's perfect. But it wasn't. I was that same person inside dying, and I, I could never stay clean for any amount of time. It wasn't until I started working on the inside stuff and actually doing therapy for it, sharing it, talking about it, 
that I was able to start healing and was actually able to stay clean. I see. So yeah, these people kind of got you back on your feet in a sense and uh, helped you like kind of take the next steps forward and then also open up so that you could really treat the real problem, which was inside. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's talk about kind of the root cause of addiction because, you know, again, the drugs are a symptom. What do you think is at the, like at the foundation or, or the essence of addiction? What I found was the one common bond between everyone I met um, while in treatment is uh, an abusive childhood or some type of severe trauma that this person had gone through in their life. You know, and it had, there is something, you know, even people would come in and they'd say, you know, I wasn't abused. I I had a, a great childhood. And then three weeks later, they would break down and say, you know what, actually, this did happen to me. My uncle did this, you know, and it was just like, it was the one thing in common that every single addict that I had talked to one way or another had had this. And there was nothing else that I could find that, uh, that was like, you know, that I could say, okay, this is what they have, genetics, whatever. It was all the abuse um, was the only thing in common. And it just seems like that when I've seen people get better and get a, lot, a long amount of clean time, it's when they've worked on that abuse and that trauma that they faced. So in my mind, I think most addiction, you know, there's this idea that people are out partying and then they just are having such a great time on drugs and they get hooked one day and that's, and it's their fault. They wanted to go party while everyone else. And that's not what I found. It's people that were suffering and medicating something. And that's how they ended up in this. These are suffering people that needed help, not, you know, they've, they were treating it as a, a criminal problem, which is just, you know, let's throw these people in jail and that's, that's going to make them stop. And that never worked. Yeah. That just made the problem 10 times worse, you know, and, and that's, that's where I think, especially I want my book to be a great message because a lot of people had written to me and they said, you know, when reading your book, we just see the war on drugs as a complete failure. But, you know, it's just, it, it hasn't solved anything. You know, and it's just, I really think treatment centers, it's good that a person can get, you know, they get off the drugs. That's great. But if they leave and that's the only thing they've worked on, the chances of them staying clean for a long time are so slim. It's just, you know, with that stuff inside that they haven't worked on. And so that's what my goal is to start a treatment center that actually make sure the people get treatment for the inside stuff before they leave, mm-hmm. you know, and I, 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 cause I've seen the government will, they'll send somebody to a treatment center for 28 days or whatever, or, or sometimes only two weeks and, or insurance company. And they'll do that multiple times instead of just giving the person the first time enough time to actually get the therapy they need to fix this thing. So they'll pay for it multiple times, short times, but if they just gave the person the, the treatment they needed the first time, they wouldn't have to keep paying for this. Mm, yeah, it 
it's like doesn't even make sense in a in a way right well what does it really mean to like work on those problems what's the process like the first step obviously is especially when you're dealing with opiates a person needs to be medically detoxed the withdrawal from opiates it can be deadly but it's just a such a uh, uh, mentally and physically, and I really get into it in the book. It's such an awful feeling. There's nothing else that compares to it. And even when you get past the physical, you're left with this depression that is beyond any normal depression a person faces. I mean, it's just like there is nothing enjoyable about life. And that's when people are most vulnerable. And that's when they're most important that they need to be in a treatment center. So the first step is really the detox and then to be in this treatment center to where it at least takes 30 days before the brain starts coming around where you can really comprehend things and actually start working on yourself. I'd say at the minimum, they need a 90 day, but a six month treatment center would be really ideal. So after they get the detox and the physical stage out, then they need to work on the inside. What is wrong that caused them to use in the first place? And they need therapy for this. Mm-hmm. And they, there's group therapy, there's one-on-one therapy, but actual dealing with that person's case, you know, not just, okay, the drugs were the problem and that's it. And you've got the drugs out and you're good. And yeah. then there needs to be an aftercare plan set up. So when you leave here, you're going to do X, Y, and Z important things. A lot of people get involved in AA or NA yeah. or they, there's, there's other groups like smart recovery and some other groups that are out there now where you're around other people who are just like you and have been through things like you. And you can get a sponsor who will call every day to check up on you, who will take you to meetings those things are all highly recommended. You know, some people don't like those. And if you don't like those, there are other meetings. If you don't like NA, there's AA. If you don't like those both, there's smart recovery. So there's other options out there. If somebody doesn't, like, if you don't like AA, it's not the end of the world. You know, there are other options to help people. But there has to be an aftercare plan because you may, I've been in treatment centers where I swore up and down, this was it. And I really believed it. But the day I walked out of there, all the temptation hits you in the face. And if you're not healthy going into that, it's just too much for people to deal with. So they need to have an aftercare plan in a safe environment where they're planning to really focus on staying clean, especially in the first year after getting out of that treatment center. First year is the hardest. Mm -hmm. And I would recommend them stay out of a relationship, stay out of especially new stuff anything like that. They need to focus on them for that first year. And so that's, that's probably the steps I, I would recommend. Yeah. So there's really a lot of emphasis on ongoing efforts to maintain that kind of health and, and well-being. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, tell me, what have you learned over like all this time about trusting yourself because at some point when you give up on yourself and then you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make that effort to recover, but you fail over and over again. It, it becomes pretty hard to trust yourself. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, what have you done to kind of rebuild that with, 
like relationship with yourself? It's it's been hard because you're absolutely right. Um, it got to the point where I just didn't know. I mean, when you can't really trust yourself because I like I said, I had been there in my mind. I'm never going to use again. And a couple of days later, it's thrown in my face and I've got a needle in my arm. And it's like, how the hell did I end up here? But I so, yes, I had lost all faith in myself, trust in myself. It was just gone. It took a lot of time. It took small things. It took small miracles. And and then I would be like, wow, you know, I did that small step and I actually did this and I actually got some more time. And it, it was really a, a process, a slow process. It's not something that happens overnight. And I'm still not there 100 percent. You know, there's always, you know, no one is ever cured 100 percent. It's all gone. So there is always that doubt in the back of your mind but on the flip side there's much more instead of the doubt side being huge and you know the other side being small it's it's the doubt side that's really small now and the other side to that is a lot stronger it's mm-hmm. kind of like whatever it's like the good wolf and the bad wolf whatever one you feed more wins yeah and, and i'm definitely not feeding the doubt one more these days Gotcha. So it's it's really like a series of small steps toward trusting yourself and not something that happens all at once. What do you do now to maintain your emotional, um, mental, spiritual health? I I love giving back and helping other people. I, I actually go to detoxes, rehabs and jails and I speak to other people that are like me. And I've been where they've been. And when I was in those places, they would have certain speakers come in and the speakers really hadn't been in the same situations as us. So the people really wouldn't listen to them. They'd be like, yeah, this guy means well, whatever, but he hasn't been where I've been. Mm. But for me, they can't say that because I've, I've been in the jail cell. I've been sitting right where they are. I've been in the rehabs. I've been in the detoxes, sick, at a, sick as a dog. I've been on the streets homeless. So when I speak, it's like the room sort of gives me all attention and there's something I get more out of it than they do. You know, they're thanking me for being there, but I'm sort of in my head thanking them because I get a a reminder of how bad it really was. And I need to remind myself of that. And then I'm able to give back um, when I go to a detox and share, you know, these guys are really thankful. You know, I have real compassion for people you know, these that I see that are suffering, you know, and it's, it's a lot of these people, they don't want to be like this. They don't want to be, uh, you know, these are people that are actually good people behind the scenes and people only see them as, you know, drug addicts or, or they've got a criminal record. They don't see the person behind it. If you got to know some of the people, they're really great people. It's just, you know, like I said, they've, they've grew up in a terrible environment. I mean, you know, I was talking to a guy the other day that has more, had more cigarettes put out on him as a little kid than you could ever. I mean, he's still got burns all over his body, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, is it a wonder that that God knows the other things he dealt with? But I mean, you've got over like 200 cigarette burns on a child. I mean, it's just so before I judge anyone these days, I, I put myself in their shoes if I can help anybody, it's it's a great feeling. 
And so that's really my main, my main focus on today is trying to um, help as many people as possible and hopefully get my rehab going. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, what are some things you would say that people can start doing about their addictions if they feel, you know, now's the time to make a change? Oh, sure. Sure. Um, a big thing about my addiction that I needed to come out and it's like the hardest thing is honesty. Addiction, the whole addict life is based around dishonesty because you can't go and survive when you're honest, you know, people find out what you're doing, where you're going and it sort of puts an end to everything. And the first thing I would recommend to people is to get honest first with themselves and then with the ones around them and ask for help. Say you need help because it's much better to do it that way. You know, it's just hard for people to do that. And then I would say you can do two things. The first main thing, especially if someone has a habit is they need to get detoxed. And I know it's difficult, you know, and it's not the easiest thing to go through, but there are a lot of medications out there now that can make the detox process a lot easier than it is going through cold turkey in a jail cell or some other inhumane way that people do things. There are a lot of programs, especially a lot of the hospitals now, by me, people can get in there for free and they'll actually take you in. You know, they've got a two-week detox program and while you're in that program, they have social workers there that will find a rehab for you to go to. And they've actually have a place near us called Integrity House which I think has like 300 beds available. They're a nine month to 18 month program. So if anyone is in the Northeast is looking for a place, I would recommend consider Integrity House in New Jersey. Right. Places that'll get you in for free and then connect you with different rehabs. Right. Because a lot of addicts don't have a ton of money sitting around to, you know, pay for rehab. Mm-hmm. And the Free places used to have months and months waiting lists, mm. which, you know, people Doesn't are help. dying. Yeah, yep. exactly. Well, what can like a friend or family member of an addict do to, to help? Okay. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. There's, there's this misconception out there about tough love um, and pe- people either go to two extremes they either take it to the point where tough love means you're out of my life. Don't talk to me. If you die, that's great. If you live, that's great. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm gone. Or they enable the person where they just give money to the person. Every time the person asks, both of these ways will not work. They don't help. They only hurt. You need to find a middle ground where you tell this person, your loved one that you will be for that or for them a hundred percent as long as, as they're willing to go get help or do what's right for them. Mm-hmm. You, if they're gonna keep using and you keep giving them money, nothing good's gonna come out of that. They're just gonna use it for drugs. You're gonna get angry at them. You're gonna feel badly done to. It's just, but if it's just throwing money at the problem will not help it. What you need to do is tell them you will be there behind them 100% and support them as long as they go get help mm-hmm. and are going in the right direction. So. Gotcha. That is the best tough love. It's not, you're not my family anymore. I hate you. Goodbye. That is not going to solve anything. You know, they need to know that you're there for them as long as they get help. 
Yeah. So really trying to reinforce that behavior where they're help- you're basically helping them as they help themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. What have you, because you mentioned this earlier, but what have you learned about boundaries and setting proper boundaries and then also your own self-worth? Right, right. No, that's true. I've been able to do that a lot better. When I was a child, you know, especially very young, I I wasn't able to really stick up for myself because I didn't have boundaries. You know, that made me a target for bullies and I dealt with especially when I was around nine years old, a horrible bullying to the point. I mean, it was, I I hear about these kids committing suicide these days and it just breaks my heart because I know what they're going through and I know what it feels like to have, you know, especially at that age, you just think the the kids are your world and the whole world hates you. And so it's, it's a terrible thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so I've, I've learned obviously a lot better about, once you feel better about yourself inside, you're able to, it lets you, it sort of automatically works where you set better boundaries. You're able to stick up for yourself better because it's not, when you feel like a piece of crap inside, you feel if somebody talks down to you or says something that they really shouldn't, but you feel terrible inside, you're not going to stick up for yourself. What I learned is the more, the better you feel about yourself, the better it is for you to keep up. A, a healthy boundary with other people, mm-hmm. you know, where you're yeah. not, they can do whatever they want to you. We, and another thing with abuse is a child doesn't value their body the same way. So they sort of become promiscuous at a very young age. And it, that's kind of been the common theme about abused children. And so that's another thing you, you learn to value your body more and just, you know, you're not going to give it away to anyone. You know, it's not, it's not the way it's meant to be that sort of helped is just finding your own self-worth and feeling good about yourself and building up your self-esteem helps you develop healthy boundaries. What are some ways that we can build that self-esteem in order to set those healthy boundaries? I believe setting goals and accomplishing them is huge for me because there was a bunch of stuff when, especially when I was in my addiction that I would say I was going to do. And I I always like half did it and never Mm -hmm. accomplished it. Mm-hmm. And, and that always left me with an incomplete feeling. So I would set realistic goals, smaller ones, and start accomplishing the smaller stuff and say, you know what, I actually did that. I followed through with it. I said I was going to do this. And that's been like writing the book was big for me because a lot of people told me I couldn't do it. And so I just set out my mind and I had to do it. And I just didn't stop till it was done. And, and things along those lines, I... I've also started to take care of myself physically um, because of all the crap I put in my body. So I've, I've started to take care of myself. And when I feel better, that I feel like I'm eating better and, and drinking water and, and not, you know, fried foods and stuff, I feel better about myself inside too. So that, that also helps as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it's kind of a, a body, mind, uh, all, the whole package coming together that helps you feel better about yourself. Yeah, yeah. That's really, I think it it creates that foundation for you. And then it creates like a a nice positive cycle, like where you feel good about yourself and then you accomplish goals and, you know, can make bigger ones. Yeah. Again, it's just so hard to imagine that 
you were once that you know homeless addict on the streets kind of in the book you in the beginning yeah. you were uh, you describe you know looking for the needle a, yeah. a, a usable needle in pile of trash and yeah and and to come to where you are now i mean yeah. truly it's 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 almost unbelievable yeah what what did you do in those times where in the beginning maybe as you were still recovering how did you address like feelings of doubt or or insecurity and, and shame around the addiction it was it was it was really hard because there's it's still i mean still to this day it's gotten so much better but you know like you said you know i was down as low as it gets but there's been this sort of weird thing that people almost respect you more when you get through something like that than it, it's it's you know i you know of course there's always going to be people out there that will hate on you no matter what you know i saw a video on youtube of a little girl that got cured of cancer and you know who could dislike that but <laughs> there were there were like uh a hundred thousand likes and then there was like a hundred dislikes and people said you know uh, i hope she dies or something you know just terrible stuff like that so there's mm -hmm. always you know that little percentage of people no matter what you do you can't please them they're just that's the way it is they're they hate everybody and they're always going to be like that so i think especially with self-esteem and getting when you go through an addiction there's a lot of stuff you're shameful of but i guess when i got it all out and shared it all. I've had more people that have written to me, even friends that I grew up with that I thought were going to be like, oh my God, when I hear all this stuff about you, like I don't want to talk to you. But they really weren't. A lot of them came to me and said, you know what? I've actually got a problem with a sex addiction that nobody knows about. I have a friend that's a doctor and he was like, I haven't told anybody this, but I'm having a problem with this. And, you know, and then I had another friend reach out to me. So the thing I seem to learn is that a lot of people that look like they have everything together have some stuff going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And the people that judge you the most seem to be the ones that are really not really the best people, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. You know? Right. Because when people judge you, that probably means that they judge themselves and it's just kind of a reflection of what they do with themselves. Exactly. Exactly. No, that's you know? really compelling and, and really inspiring to hear that, you know, even people you would have never thought had something going on or, or people from the past are reaching out to you. Yes, yes. Yeah. I've had uh, uh, amazing people uh, that have uh, reached out to me and, and been uh, unbelievable that I haven't talked to in 20 years and just, you know, look, we love you. You know, what you went through is horrible, you know, whatever, we're here for you now. And that's it. That has been remarkable. And yeah. uh, if somebody doesn't and, and they hate me for it, well, then that's that's on them. It's none of my business, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So really able to kind of focus on what matters. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What's your relationship with the past now? Because, you know, we can't go back and change what happened in childhood terrible things, you know, things that you would never wish on anyone else. Right. How do you think of it now? You know, it's, uh, it's something that I, I, I mean, I wish it didn't happen, but it is part of who I am. And um, 
I, I really think that I'm meant to, I guess, help people like myself because there was no one like me out there for me when, as if that makes sense. Like mm -hmm. I, I didn't have someone that was like, Oh, you know what? I went through this as a man went through this and dealt with this. And if you were going through it, you can, you know, talk about it or, you know, that made me feel like I swore I'd never talk about this stuff. I was taking it to my grave and that was it. Mm -hmm. I mean, as, as like 10 years ago, if you would have said something to me, I would have, you're crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I, that, that's how, but it was killing me. And I know there's a lot of other people out there that are dealing with it and it's killing them. And so I, I I've got to figure out a way to get, get this message where people can talk about this and heal. I think I can help a ton of suffering people. Yeah. And so I feel like I'm meant to do something good with this. I just haven't figured out exactly what it is yet, but I really feel like I went through all this suffering in hell so I can help a bunch of people not go through it. Wow. Yeah. You've really created your own meaning for what happened. Yeah. And rather than being a victim to it, you're using it to empower yourself. Right, right. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. Thanks. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for sharing your story. I know it's, you know, these are very personal things and, and I think it takes a lot of courage to do that. Thanks. Yeah, and again, your mission to help others who were in that place uh, that you were in is really inspiring. So thank you so much. Sure, sure. My pleasure, Jessica. It was really nice talking to you. You just let your listeners know. The book's named Such Unfortunates by Andrew Mann. You can get it on Amazon. And if they ever want to contact me, they can contact me, especially on Facebook. It's Facebook at Amazing New Book. Or they can just type in Such Unfortunates Andrew Mann and write me a message and I will help them in any way I can. Awesome. Hi friend, it's Jessica here. Hey, I want to get to know what you've been finding helpful in these podcasts. So feel free to drop me a line, jessica at guruplease.com. Let me know what your favorite show was, anything you've been finding useful, tips that you've been implementing in your own life. Because our mission really is to provide value so that you can live a better life. And we would love to hear your feedback. I'll catch you in the next episode.